The rights to certain characters and stories can be a funny thing in the industry. Let's say, for example, that you wanted to make your own Sherlock Holmes movie and release it for sale. Put it in a theater, get it on digital, make a buck. This is something that you can absolutely do without any worry about some company suing you for infringing on their IP or intellectual property. That's because Sherlock Holmes is in the public domain and anyone can use that character for free. There's a lot of characters in the public domain, actually, aside from Sherlock Holmes. Dracula, Frankenstein, Alice in Wonderland, Zorro, and Robin Hood are all public domain characters. This is one reason why you see those characters popping up in different versions back in theaters and on television every so often. Now, if you wanted to make your own Spider-Man, Batman, John Wick, or, say, Captain Jack Sparrow movie and release that for sale, now that would be a different story. Those guys are all copyrighted, and each copyright comes with its own lawsuit should you decide to try to make a buck off of them. This is probably not news to you. But there is one character whose history includes a much-disputed, heavily-litigated copyright and even led to a rival movie being released the same year as the genuine article, so to speak. And that character is James Bond. And that disputed, often-litigated copyright is all thanks to one man who some Bond fans might think of as 007's true arch-villain, Kevin McClory. And today, we're taking a look at the convoluted story of Kevin McClory in an episode that we're calling, No, Mr. Bond, I Expect You in Court. Welcome to the industry. At the time of this podcast, there are 24 official James Bond movies out there, with the 25th on the way in the year 2020. It's the one franchise that never seems to end and, well, never says never. Bond movies have been going strong now for over 50 years. In the 2015 film Spectre, James Bond faced off against the villainous Ernst Stavro Blofeld. It was Blofeld's first appearance in an official Bond movie since 1971. Before, Blofeld was a mainstay in the James Bond universe, an evil guy always looking to blow up the world for some reason or another. Back when Sean Connery was playing Bond, Blofeld was popping up all the time. He's just a shadowy figure in the second Bond film from Russia with Love, pulling the strings. You don't even get a good look at the guy. You can finally see him up front and center in You Only Live Twice. Here he has that signature look of a bald head, facial scar, and seemingly always sitting in a chair, petting a white cat. That whole Dr. Evil look. The next Bond pictures are also Blofeld heavy. On Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby as Bond, and in Connery's final Bond picture, Diamonds Are Forever. And after that, he was just gone. James Bond, of course, would return. He always does. But Blofeld was nowhere to be found as the series moved into the 1970s with Roger Moore as Bond. He wouldn't officially reappear until 2015. So why did Blofeld disappear? It's all because of one man, Kevin McClory, and one Bond story in particular. James Bond is in operation. And what an operator he is in Ian Fleming's... Thunderball. Thunderball. Ian Fleming is the creator of James Bond. Everyone knows this. 
The movies love to remind you of Ian Fleming by constantly throwing his name on the screen in every single movie and making statements like this. Roger Moore is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. Fleming wrote his first Bond novel, Casino Royale, in 1953. By mid-1958, Fleming had written six James Bond novels and was looking to get his creation on the silver screen. There was one version of Bond that had already appeared on American television, but the less said about it, the better. This is when Fleming gets introduced to Kevin McClory. McClory had been working in the industry already for a number of years. He'd been a part of John Huston's crew making the classic The African Queen. He had also been a production assistant on Around the World in 80 Days. And when Ian Fleming met him, Kevin McClory was writing and directing his own feature, a war film called The Boy in the Bridge. Fleming, McClory, and two friends named Ivar Bryce and Ernest Cuneo all got to work on a James Bond screenplay. Over the next few months, ten different scripts were written. Different titles were tossed around like James Bond of the Secret Service and Longitude 78 West. Eventually, things got shaped up when McClory brings in an experienced screenwriter named Jack Whittingham into the fold in 1959. Whittingham had been writing screenplays for years and at this point had over 15 British screenwriting credits to his name. Kevin had an awful lot of time for Jack. The thing uh, was Jack was a writer for hire. Um, So I think Kevin had known Jack before he got involved with Fleming. Kevin had been in the film industry actively since 47. So he'd known quite a few people and he, uh, he knew Jack and he wanted to bring in a third party to just kind of get this um, screenplay uh, off the ground. Uh, So, and Kevin found that Jack, he always said that Jack was able to speak Fleming's language. That is Morgan Fillum. Morgan Fulham. I worked for the estate of Kevin McClory, so I was hired after he died to kind of tidy things up for him, and he left quite a substantial archive, so I was kind of dealing with that too. Uh, but I was, uh, I was a lawyer at the time, so I was dealing with more kind of company law things and just making sure everything was, was going fine. And then I, through that process, kind of became a bit of an expert on the intellectual property that was involved. So then I became a consultant when we did that settlement in 2013. And that settlement in 2013 that he's referring to is the one that returned Blofeld to the world of James Bond. But let's get back to 1959. In November of that year, Fleming leaves to travel the world for a non-fiction travel book. During this time, screenwriter Jack Whittingham completes an outline that McClory says is ready to shoot. In December of 59, Whittingham and McClory send Ian Fleming the completed script for Longitude 78 West. Fleming receives the screenplay, likes it, but changes the name to Thunderball. Then, something kind of crazy happens. Fleming decides to head home to Jamaica in January of 1960 and starts working on a novel. Two months later, in March, he's done. The novel that he was working on? Thunderball. And when Thunderball, the novel, is released one year later in March of 1961, the only name credited on it is Ian Fleming's. So what happened? What caused Fleming to novelize the Thunderball screenplay and essentially cut out McClory and Whittingham? There's a story that it had to do with Kevin McClory's feature, The Boy and the Bridge. That picture came out in 1959 and did not do well at the box office or with critics. 
Fleming had wanted McClory to serve as producer on Thunderball, but now he was maybe starting to see McClory as a liability. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is uh, much more uh, controversial. Kevin had an option to produce it, and Kevin had talked to uh, he had talked to Sam Golden Jr. and he had talked to another big producer whose name unfortunately escapes me right now, and he was trying to get the film done. They were going to finance it, and they needed Fleming's assignment. And Fleming wouldn't give the assignment. There was all these excuses and delays, and he wound down the clock. And uh, it emerged that uh, Fleming had actually done a deal with the MCA. They became, I can't remember who they became, but they're a big um, production company at the time. And they are, well, they were kept Fleming's agents at the time. And they, they had done a deal around these James Bond um, properties, and that, that's why Fleming won out of it because he was going to go ahead with another party but it wasn't to do with the boy in the bridge really I don't think so um, I know the boy in the bridge didn't do hugely well but it went to represented Britain at the Vienna Film Festival you know and it was never supposed to be a blockbuster it was this arty um, picture the boy in the bridge was never meant to be a big um, hit so I think that line that idea that side of the story is out there to kind of deflect from the stuff that there may have been some shenanigans with Mr. Fleming. Just prior to Thunderball, the novel being released, McClory and Whittingham filed a lawsuit against Fleming for plagiarism and attempted to have the novel stopped. This doesn't work. Thunderball, the novel, is released and it's a huge hit at the bookstores. It sells out and becomes the highest-selling Bond novel at the time. It's also in 1961 that producers Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli come together and make a deal to start making James Bond movies. They form two companies in order to do this. One, Danjack, which is basically the company that owns the rights to James Bond, and Eon Productions, this is the company that will actually make the James Bond movies. The first movie they want to make is, of course, Thunderball. But McClory and Whittingham are still suing, and through this complication, Eon Productions ends up having to choose a different Bond novel to adapt. They decide on Dr. No. Eventually, Jack Whittingham drops out of his lawsuit and instead becomes a witness for Kevin McClory. I think Jack was very frustrated and very uh, upset by the whole thing, but he was, an, he was in the original action with Kevin. So he was going to uh, the, the 63 cases, as it's known. But he left that case. Um, and I think he left for a couple of reasons. One was it was a hugely expensive case to be in. And I think he had a separate cause of action, Kevin. Because Kevin effectively owned the copyright anyway, because Jack was the writer for hire. You know, he didn't have rights in perpetuity on that particular piece of material. But he did have... I, maybe another claim within the kind of broader intellectual uh, copyright kind of in, uh, world, but it was a different claim to Kevin's. So I think it, w it was terrible that Jack didn't at the time um, get his day in court with Fleming. Um, but his decision not to go with Kevin was one that um, happened much earlier. He had originally been on the... He had been in the same pleadings with Kevin and then chose to... Uh, to leave the, those pleadings. The case went to court in late 1963, and nine days later, it was settled. Kevin had won. 
Fleming paid McClory damages of 35,000 pounds and his court case of 52,000 pounds, and future versions of Thunderball were credited as based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and Ian Fleming, in that order. But more importantly than a credit and money, Kevin McClory won the rights to all of the different scripts that were written during the collaboration. Or a better way of putting it, Kevin owned Thunderball. It was his movie to make. And since the character of Blofeld was introduced in Thunderball, he owned him too. With his rights now secure, Kevin makes an interesting play. He initially seeks out making Thunderball all on his own. So Kevin wanted um, Connery, because Kevin had known Connery from way before Bond. So Kevin wanted Connery to star in his uh, Thunderball without um, broccoli. Um, but he chatted to, to Sean and Connery said, oh, I'm, I'm actually contracted for a few more films. I'm not available. So Kevin was thinking, well, Connery's iconic uh, actor, uh, or at that time he was like the, the perfect James Bond. Is there any other actor in the world that could compete with him, that have the, you know, the gravitas and, the, and the, the presence that Connery had? And Kevin settled on Richard Burton. So Kevin went to Canada where Richard Burton was doing a play and... Um, they agreed that uh, Richard Burton would do uh, would play James Bond. However, Kevin and Richard Burton were old friends, um, so it was re- the idea of it was just to put some pressure on Broccoli so that Broccoli would negotiate with Kevin and that they would um, make uh, the movie together. So after initially making some noise about making Thunderball. McClory ends up signing a deal with Dan Jack slash Eon Productions, the official Bond people, for the rights to Thunderball in 1964. Okay, here we are. We're at Dublin Airport in, I think, probably 64, 65. And uh, Cubbies come to Dublin to to meet Kevin to do this, this deal on Thunderball. So they agree all the terms, except Kevin wants um, to have the film the rights back in yeah he says 10 years and uh, Cubby says why do you want the, the rights back in 10 years he said well because I want to make my own James Bond films in 10 years and he said and Cubby said nobody's going to be interested in James Bond in 10 years the year 1964 is notable in the James Bond world first of all McClory signs his 10 year deal for Thunderball the third James Bond movie, Goldfinger, was released in 1964 and was a hit. And last, Ian Fleming died of a heart attack at the age of 56 in 1964. In 1965, Thunderball is finished and released. It's billed as the biggest Bond of them all. It says it right there on the poster. And... Kevin gets a producing credit. Dr. No. Big. From Russia with love. Bigger. Goldfinger. Even bigger. Now, here comes the biggest Bond of all. Thunderball. Now, James Bond does it. Everywhere. Look up, look down, look out! Here comes the biggest bond of all, 
Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Salzman present Sean Connery in Thunderball. Produced by Kevin McClory. Panavision, Technicolor, a United Artists release. Thunderball. And Thunderball is a smash hit. It's the highest grossing James Bond film at the time. This might not seem that impressive considering there were only four movies by 1965. However, what is impressive is that adjusted for inflation, Thunderball is still the highest grossing James Bond picture in the U.S. The adjusted box office number for 2019 listed at $673 million. Blofeld, after just being a shadowy unnamed character, makes his full debut in Thunderball and would appear in the next few movies thanks to the 10-year agreement McClory had made. And after the huge success of Thunderball, Kevin McClory kind of disappears, at least from the James Bond world. Ten years later, though, Kevin jumps back into the Bond world, fully expecting to exercise his rights. At this point, it's the mid-1970s, and Roger Moore has taken over as Bond in the series. And for Kevin, that means that Sean Connery is now available to star in his Bond movie. For this, Kevin not only recruited Connery to play Bond, but also to help write the script, along with Len Dayton, a novelist who had written the Harry Palmer spy series. And the movie they came up with is a variant on Thunderball called Warhead. There's a few versions, but certainly one was that um, Spectre had kind of become these eco-terrorists and they uh, were disgusted at how the world's oceans were being destroyed. So they were going to hold the West for ransom. That was one story element of it. Uh, And uh, they were going to threaten to blow up significant uh, structures in Manhattan. Uh, the newly built uh, World Trade Center and the Statue of Liberty. And they were going to do it by using laser-guided mechanical sharks in the sewer systems of New York. Yes, that's right. Mechanical sharks that shoot laser beams in the New York City sewer system. There's also a Bond girl with the grown-worthy name Justine Loves It and a fight on top of the head of the Statue of Liberty. Paramount Pictures was on board to distribute and quite honestly, I really want to see this movie. So, what happened? Warhead, the greatest Bond film never made, is how it's often described. <laughs> um, okay, so, it's because it's, it's, I'm lucky in my uh, position to actually have access to the archive, so I'm familiar enough with what kind of a film it would have been, and it would have been fantastic. But sadly, this is the kind of sequence of events. So, Kevin is going to make uh, Warhead. Um, I believe Paramount are going to provide financing and distribution. They make an announcement in the press and the Fleming estate uh, through the trustees and um, UA and perhaps Dan Jack Neon, I'm not sure, uh, seek an injunction against Kevin. That scares Paramount off. Well, it's not so much that Paramount gets scared off, it's the, the insurers for the film get nervous uh, I think was the fireman's trust so they're beginning to get antsy and they're beginning to get worried because they're uh, by that point I don't know how much money uh, Dan or Eon had made but it was significant um, Paramount didn't want the hassle of it. they didn't want the, the worry and the trouble so they pulled out and they pull out and Kevin then starts negotiations with Callie and Frank Wells from Warner Brothers 
and they're going to make it. Kevin has put a limit on the, the time to the negotiations. The time runs out, they can't come to an agreement, so Kevin pulls out of that deal. It's often described as Warner Brothers pulled out, but it was actually Kevin uh, pulled out of that particular deal. And not long after that, or could have even been slightly before that, Lorimar make a pitch to Kevin about doing a Bond films. And Kevin doesn't like the terms that they're offering or whatever, so the deal stalls. But the vice president of Larimar at the time was Jack Schwartzman. And Jack Schwartzman's role in that particular deal was to investigate Kevin's title. Because Jack Schwartzman had been a motion picture lawyer for 25 years or something at that point. So uh, he, he had been the guy who investigated the title. Did Kevin have the rights he claimed to have? And uh, he could see that he did. So that's how we get through. Uh, but unfortunately, sorry to get back to Warhead, they figured that the safest route was to go as close to the Thunderball script as possible because that was the least disputed kind of territory. So that's why Warhead got parked at that time, was that it was to actually get a film made, the decision was to go the route of least resistance, and that was to do something much closer to Thunderball while Kevin unquestionably had the rights to remake Thunderball, the Warhead script veered too far away from it, and that's why it was never made. Instead, a new script that was basically a remake of Thunderball was ready to go by the early 1980s. All this time that Warhead is being sorted out by lawyers and producers, the James Bond series keeps on going with Roger Moore as Bond. However, Bond's main villain, Blofeld, hadn't made an appearance since 1971's Diamonds Are Forever, the last one to star Sean Connery. But when it was apparent that Kevin did have his Thunderball remake in production, the Moore series made an interesting move. In the pre-title sequence to 1981's For Your Eyes Only, an unnamed and only shown from behind Blofeld makes an appearance, trapping Bond in a helicopter he controls by remote control. Of course, the tables are quickly turned, that's no shock. However, Bond then scoops up his nemesis and drops him down an industrial smokestack, killing him. sending a clear message to Kevin McClory and his Thunderball remake. And that message was, have fun using Blofeld, we don't need him here anyway. McClory's Thunderball remake was called Never Say Never Again, a play on the fact that Connery had once said he would never again play Bond, and it was set to come out in 1983, the same year as the next official Bond picture, Octopussy. Roger Moore originally wanted out of making Octopussy. He was tired of the role and felt he was too old to play it anymore. He was right, by the way. Producers started looking for a replacement, and a couple of guys, most notably James Brolin, came close to getting it. Once Never Say Never Again was an actuality, Bond producers then felt they couldn't compete against Sean Connery, the original 007, with a new guy coming up as Bond. So, Roger Moore once again strapped on the tuxedo to go to war. Once 1983 rolled around and both movies were ready to roll, the media dubbed it the Battle of the Bonds, and a number of newspaper and magazine articles popped up going over both pictures. Both Moore and Connery were constantly being asked about the other ad nauseum. 
Here's part of a four-part piece the Today Show did on both films. Well, I don't know whether you're a fan of Sean Connery or Roger Moore, but you're going to have the choice this summer to pick either one, because since last fall, Moore and Connery have been shooting new James Bond movies around the world. And at one point, both were filming in London, where I caught up with them. Does Moore know there are two 007s at work? Are there? Well, Would you like me to tell you about the other one? Yeah, well, is there, is there really another one? Yes, yes, there's a chap, chap trying time, to get started up there. First I'd heard about that, and that's amazing. Well, it's not only amazing, it's amusing. Because the competition is none other than Sean Connery returning as James Bond in Never Say Never Again. Are you amused by the fact that uh, at this point you and Roger are shooting Bond films uh, at simultaneously? Yeah, we, I bumped into him actually. He was staying in the Arlington House here in London with um, where our director is Kushner. One morning I came and bumped into Roger in the street and uh, we talked and it was just, he had just started. And the conversation was very brief and he was very sad. And he said, where are you guys? He said, I'm just going off to location. And I remember it was somewhere. Uh, some dreadful town just on the outskirts of London. And he said, where are you going? And I said, the south of France. <laughs> I said, very nice. He said, then where are you going? And I, I said, uh, I'm going to uh, Nassau, the Bahamas. He said, oh, yes. I said, where are you going? He said, India. <laughs> and then I said, oh, well, that's nice. Well, I'll see you back in London, I suppose. Are you surprised to find yourself back here, meaning playing James, James Bond? Bond? Yes, I am in some ways. I mean, having said, you know, never again, as it were. When I was approached by Kevin McClory, he had the rights after 10 years to uh, remake the Thunderball. It was then that all the lawyers came out of the woodwork and the uh, legal ramifications became far too complex. And I've had enough of these over the last few years that I chose not to proceed. And uh, out of the blue, Jack Schwartzman approached me with a view to doing this one. And I said, well, two conditions. One is that it is totally clean and I have no more dealings with lawyers, as it were, though he happens to be a lawyer. And I have total indemnification from yourself. And uh, he provided both of these clauses. And uh, here we are. The producers of both Bond films had the good sense to keep them away from each other on the calendar. Roger Moore and Octopussy would open first on June 6th. Sean Connery and Never Say Never Again wouldn't hit theaters until October 7th. And it shakes out like this. Never Say Never Again scored the higher opening weekend. $10.9 million versus $8.9 for Octopussy. However, in overall box office, Never Say Never Again would lag behind. In the U.S., Octopussy won out with $67 million versus $55 million, and worldwide it was the victor with $187 million to Never Say Never Again's $160. But make no mistake, both pictures were highly successful. And even though it was a hit, Never Say Never Again did not spawn a new Bond series with Sean Connery, or with anyone else for that matter. And for the rest of the 1980s, Kevin McClory was not really looking to do that. All that would change in the 90s, though. Kevin's last go-round with James Bond would look like this. In 1996, one year after Pierce Brosnan made his debut as Bond in GoldenEye, Kevin decided to announce that he would be making Warhead 2000 AD, basically another remake of Thunderball. And once again, he had a former James Bond to star, 
This time around, it was Timothy Dalton. In 1997, Kevin entered a deal with Sony to not only make the new version of Warhead, but an entire James Bond franchise. This did not go over well at Dan Jack, which was at the time working with MGM, and they quickly filed a $25 million lawsuit to stop Sony from going forward. Sony then countersued with the claim that Kevin McClory was the co-author of the cinematic James Bond and was thus owed fees from MGM and Dan Jack. At some point, Kevin would even claim that a 68-year-old Sean Connery would be coming back in his version of James Bond. This played out in the trades for a couple of years until in 1999, Sony and MGM settled. MGM would pay Sony $5 million to settle the lawsuit and $10 million to not make any James Bond movies. MGM would also get the rights to Casino Royale, a Bond novel they did not own the rights to previously. A few years later, in 2004, Sony would end up buying MGM and thus own the James Bond franchise anyway. There was no need to have Kevin McClory and his Thunderball rights. Blofeld would return to the Bond franchise with Spectre, released in 2015. And I wondered what Kevin might have thought of this version of Blofeld that came about. Spectre, the last James Bond film, which I think he would have dreadfully not got on very well with, because I thought it was appalling given Kevin's... Kevin always thought uh, Blofeld should never have been seen. Uh, always back to the original... Uh, Thunderbolt, you know, like half scene and her, you know, petting the the cat. Uh, he was always wanted to keep him very, very mysterious, and they they just they didn't do that one very well. And recently again, so I think he would have been appalled. This is Jack Gillum. Jack is an old drinking buddy that Kevin met in the '80s, who was currently running a Twitter account in Kevin's name. So of course. The first question I had to ask him was, how is it that you're running a Kevin McClory Twitter account? You know, I because he'd want me to. I mean, he never discussed <laughs> Twitter wasn't around. But but he was always one for, like, making sure the truth got out. And so I, I, I set it up it, right after Spectre, because I didn't like Spectre. I knew it was not the Spectre that Kevin would have liked. The reason, the reason for that is because I, I would have thought Kevin would have liked to have some some say back for and it was funny his son Bramwell uh, you know DM'd me and said who are you to run this and I said hey Bramwell this is Jack I met you in uh, Pakilahis and we were talking about F1 and uh, so forth and he goes oh yeah I know who you are I said do you mind if I keep doing this he goes ah not too bad he, he, he didn't give me a ringing endorsement when Jack first met Kevin in a pub over 30 years ago, he quickly learned about his connection to 007. I mean, he tells you very quickly, right? <laughs> Number one. And he's such a storyteller that he enthralls you. I mean, he's the best regaler I ever came across. He, he would like to be known as a Shanachie, which is an old Irish folklore uh, verbal historian. And as a storyteller, Kevin was full of stories, especially about working in the movies. He would talk about John Huston. John Huston on the set of African Queen. And uh, he said they, as soon as they arrived, he got into his head. He wanted a bull tusk, a bull elephant tusk. Had to have it. Went and bought the biggest elephant gun. And they went out hunting. And he says they were out for weeks. And he says, he says John Hughes, uh, or, um, Huston, Huston um, you know, would get the porters to, to beat the bushes, literally. And he, he said he 
one or two of the porters died <laughs> doing that. And of course, Liz Taylor. How he introduced Elizabeth Taylor to Richard Burton. And I went, really? And uh, subsequently I found out, I think he kind of dated Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, anyway, he told me this story once and then I was going, he was staying at uh, John Houston's house in Galway near Athenry and I would go up on weekends and uh, me and some friends and we'd hang out. And he, he showed me, he mounted the, the letter from Elizabeth Taylor saying, oh, thank you, Kevin, for introducing me to that lovely fellow, Richard, at a party. And yes, Kevin McClory introduced Liz Taylor to Richard Burton. I know, I know. After speaking with Jack and listening to his stories, it wasn't a surprise to find out that Kevin was quite a character. I always considered him a bit like Doctor Who because he always had an assistant with him. And this poor, ever-suffering assistant would be doing filing upon filing upon filing. And I, I don't know, I've known about 10 of his assistants over the years. And they would you know, make the calls, do this, and Kevin would like you to come along, or there's a party to come. So yeah, he was a, a force of nature. Jack also told me about a charity event that Kevin held in the 1970s called Circasia, which featured Eric Clapton, Burgess Meredith, Shirley MacLaine, and of course, Sean Connery as circus clowns. John Houston was the ringmaster. Look it up, it's crazy. He also told me about his fascination with tech. You see it in the James Bond films, right? I, I was always, I, I said, that was a cool little aqua lung that, uh, that James Bond used in Thunderball, right? Because, uh, and he had, he and radar detector, uh, sorry, radiation detectors and the rest. And so he had, he always had the latest gimmick. I mean, he had the first hard disk I ever saw. He bought, a, he bought a 20 megabyte hard disk for God, it was like some insane amount of money, like 1,500 Irish punts at the time. So he was a gadgeteer, and that's how we, we loved tech. Which does fit right in with James Bond and his gadgets. Kevin died in 2006, and for diehard Bond fans who likely know everything that's been said in this podcast already, they view Kevin, not Blofeld, as James Bond's greatest villain constantly suing and trying to make his own version of a character that he didn't really create. But that's not everyone's view. Um, but we, we certainly became uh, fast friends and techno buddies and, and uh, drinking buddies. And he, he was always very warm. Uh, great guy. And uh, I miss him a lot. Morgan Fillum, our McClory historian who helped settle the Thunderball rights from Kevin's estate back in 2013, has a different view of Kevin's complicated legacy. The way I see it is that, so uh, I'm not sure if you were, but the first film that the Broccoli's were going to wanted to produce was Thunderball. The first script Connery got was Thunderball. Thunderball was the template for all the Bond films. Don't forget that the per Kevin's Kevin's idea was that this character needed to be rewritten just for the screen, and they needed a vehicle for that, and that vehicle was Thunderball. So Thunderball is the daddy of the James Bond films. It's not the first one out, but it, it was supposed to be the first one out. And the same writer who uh, Richard Maybaum, who wrote the script that. Um, the Broccoli's were, had planned to produce, uh, sorry, Broccoli and Schwartzman, I should because uh, back then Schwartzman was still involved, that Eon uh, was supposed to produce at the time had been written by Richard Maybaum, and then when they realized they didn't have the rights to do it, 
they got the same writer to write Dr. No. So he had all of the material that had gone to create this new vehicle for the visual cinematic James Bond, which was Thunderball. So I would say that if, it, if Thunderball didn't happen, if Thunderball wasn't written, if Fleming, Kevin and Jack hadn't created this uh, screenplay, the James Bond we know now would be very different. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my guests this week, Morgan Fillum and Jack Gillen. Music in this episode was by Kevin McLeod, DJ Williams, Silent Partner, and Audionautics. Our awesome cover art is by Kathleen Manderfield. If you haven't seen it, you could check it out at our website at theindustrypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to let others know about it. I could use the downloads, you know. You can also help out by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, but no pressure on that one, okay? If you have a comment or complaint or you just want to say hi, you can send me an email. The address is dan at theindustrypodcast.com. And we'll be back again soon with another episode detailing some of the lesser-known things that went on in the industry. Good night.